With Long Island local news on Friday, November 17th, 2023, I'm Gianna Volpe on WLIWFM. New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed the Clean Slate Act into law yesterday, which would automatically seal the records of most convicted people after they have served their sentence and stayed out of trouble for certain periods of time under the new law. The wait period before sealing a record will be three years after completing a sentence for a misdemeanor, eight for a felony. The most serious type of felony known as Class A, which includes murder and other charges, would never be eligible for sealing, nor would any sex or domestic terrorism crimes fields such as law enforcement and education would still have access to those records. Republicans have blasted the legislation, saying it hurts victims, takes away a power that judges already had the ability to do so on their own accord. Quote, the Clean Slate Act represents the latest step in the wrong direction. Assembly Minority Leader Will Barclay wrote in a statement, uh, adding, quote, this is yet Another pro-criminal, misguided policy from the people intent on dismantling law and order and removing individual accountability. Some law enforcement officials also railed against Clean Slate, saying the measures fall in line with the state's revisions to bail laws. Quote, I think there's a force magnifier when you have law after law that emboldens criminals, law that tells criminals they're not accountable for their actions. That quote from Suffolk County PBA President Lou Savello, who added, I think it certainly demoralizes your law enforcement officers, those of us that are out there risking our lives to make this a safer place to live. End quote. In other news, many of the once green pine trees along roadways in Suffolk County have turned yellow and orange, evidence that they're dying. They're victims of the southern pine beetle. An invasive insect no longer than a grain of rice that ecologists say currently is the biggest threat to Long Island's pine barrens. Lisa L. Colangelo reporting on Newsday.com that forestry experts said they've seen an increase in southern pine beetle activity, particularly over the past two years, fueled by warmer winters, a drought in 2022, and dense woodlands where trees compete for water, sunlight, and nutrients. Quote, the beetle population and infestation is at a severe enough level where they're starting to grow in an exponential way, and it's more noticeable that from Nathan Hudson, Southern Pine Beetle Program Coordinator for the New York State DEC, uh, who added it has done that this summer, especially on the South Fork, Napeague State Park in East Hampton, South Haven County Park in Yapank, and lands around Brookhaven National Lab in Upton are just some of the places the beetles have infested, killing countless trees over the last year, mostly pitch pine and white pines. Since it appeared on Long Island in 2014, the beetle has destroyed approximately 5,000 acres, including an estimated 800 this year, according to the DEC. It has cut swaths of through an ecosystem home to dozens of animals and plants, including endangered species. Large portions of the Pine Barrens have been set aside to preserve clean drinking water. The beetle, let's see if I can do this, Dendroctonus frontalis, is native to the southeastern United States, but has been moving north, likely due to warmer winters, according to officials. Ecologists in New Jersey, which has a Pinelands National Reserve topping a million acres, have been battling it for more than 20 years. While the beetle has also been spotted in Nassau County, experts said it's less of a threat there because there's no large pitch pine forests. And finally, Walgreens will close most of its drugstores on Thanksgiving Day for the first time in its history, the retailer announced yesterday. Torianne Parrish reporting on Newsday.com that about 700 stores that are 24-hour locations will remain open on the holiday. That includes Long Island Drug Stores in Hempstead, Selden, and Deer Park, according to Walgreens spokesperson Lauren Bauer, who said, We've consistently heard from our team members who are the face of Walgreens that time off is a meaningful way for us to demonstrate we value them. Uh, that is Tracy uh, Tracy Brown, president of Walgreens Retail and Chief Customer Officer, who said that in a statement on Thursday. CVS said many of its drugstores will be open during regular hours on Thanksgiving, but some may be closed or have reduced hours. Uh, CVS spokesperson Courtney 
Colho said yesterday that they recommend people call their local stores before visiting or check hours at CVS.com. Reading the weather in Huntington in honor of Courtney Leonard, uh, her recent solo show was at Heckscher Museum and she continues to exhibit her work at the planting fields in Oyster Bay. I think that's through this summer. Courtney will be returning to have our conversation that we planned for the beginning of the month. Can't wait for her to join us. Looking like a partly sunny Friday morning in Huntington with a high near 65 degrees. South wind around 11 miles per hour tonight. 30% chance of rain mainly after 4 a.m. Cloudy otherwise tonight with a low around 48 degrees. South wind 5 to 8 miles per hour. Right now it's 60 degrees. And it is the return to center edition. But it is also in honor of Courtney Leonard's return, so we can have our conversation in honest. I'm probably going to be bunny. Well, we'll see. I'm definitely opening with Oblio's return narration from Harry Nielsen's 1970 record, The Point. I had planned The Point of No Return uh, from The Phantom of the Opera, um, but I might just hop over to Mark Morrison's title track from his 1996 record, let you guess the title if you don't already know. Um, we'll see what we we'll see what we do. Stay tuned. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Harry Nielsen, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to WLIWFM news you can trust and music you love on 88.3 FM throughout Eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in Central and Western Suffolk County. Streaming online wherever you may be at WLIW. Org radio. The next morning, Oblio noticed that the rock under which they'd slept was in the shape of a giant pointing hand. And there was an inscription on its side which read, Destination Point. So they set off in the direction indicated by the hand. And before long, they found themselves on a road which led them out of the pointless forest and on and on through the pointed hills and valleys until finally they paused. And in the distance, they could see the spires and the steeples of the land of Point. Now, when the townspeople heard that Oblio and Arrow had returned, they ran out to the edge of town to give them a hero's welcome. For you see, not only were the people glad to see them, Oblio and Arrow were the first to have ever been to the Pointless Forest. But when word of Oblio's return reached the Count, he was so mad, he ran to the courtyard and he grabbed Oblio and he said, what are you doing here? You are banished to the Pointless Forest. And Oblio said, But we went to the Pointless Forest, and, and not only that, but it's not pointless at all. What? There was a huge gasp from the crowd. Nonsense, said the Count. You're in trouble. And just then, the King arrived, and he said, Not so fast, Count. What do you mean, not pointless, Oblio? And Oblio said, Well, it's just that we did go to the pointless forest, and it's not pointless at all. In fact, the trees pointed, no, from the crowd. And the, and the leaves on all the branches pointed, no, from the crowd. In fact, even the branches pointed. And not only that, but everyone we met in the entire pointless forest had a point. And it's just that, well, it's just like here. And we figured that since everything has a point, then I must have one too. And just then, someone in the crowd yelled out, You just got a point there! And at that point, the bell sounded in the pointed steeple. And all the points on the tops of all the buildings in the whole land of point began to melt. And at that point, the points on the tops of the heads of all the people in the whole land of point began to melt. All that is except the counts. His just sort of flopped over on its side. And he split, presumably for the pointless forest. Before he did, he reached over and he grabbed Oblio and he pulled off his cap. And you know what? There on the top of Oblio's head was a point. Well, that's about it. That's the end of the story. And it's also the end of the album. So, thank you. And good night. Very star-bellied sneeches, right? From that Seuss book. All right, let's go ahead to Andrew Lloyd Webber. 
Gerard Butler and Emily Rosam. The, um, the original motion picture soundtrack version of The Point of No Return from The Phantom of the Opera. Go away for the trap is set and waits for its prey. You have come here in pursuit of your deepest in pursuit of that wish which till now has been silent, silent. I have brought you that our passions may fuse and merge. In your mind you've already succumbed to me, dropped all defenses, completely succumbed to me. Now you are here with me, no second thoughts, you've decided, decided, past the point of no return, no backward glances, our games of make-believe are at an end. Past or thought of if or when. No use resisting. Abandon thought and let the dream descend. What raging shall flood the soul What rich desire unlocks its door What sweet seduction lies before us Past the point of no return The final threshold What warm unspoken secrets will we
Definitely cried real tears. Seeing Phantom on Broadway. That said, I also cried during the Lego Batman movie. (laughs) And most recently, to Slumberland. Phantom. Probably this song. segue is going to be so sweet (laughs) and make no sense.
All right. Mark Morrison leading us to the bottom of the 10 o'clock hour on Friday morning, a little after 1 o'clock. If you're listening to the replay and it's time for our hot sights and sounds segment underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema. Um, This is day one of the third annual festival of preservation for them. BTW. Uh, Very grateful that Courtney Leonard is joining us. We got kind of painted into a corner with the 11 a.m. cutoff of NPR News the last time we were trying to discuss your first solo exhibition at Heckscher Museum, a successful one, as I've heard. First of all, tell me everything about what having your first solo museum show was like for you? Oh, um, it was um, my first uh, mid-career retrospect on Long Island, uh, which was uh, really heartfelt and important to me because it gave me the opportunity to show a bit of my life's work um, very close to my community of Long Island and uh, more specifically um, my community of Shinnecock, um, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Shinnecock Nation of Long Island, New York, or what is referred to as Long Island, New York. And so uh, the programming, um, the the gathering for the openings, it included family members and community members. And uh, and it was just really uh, special in that regard. And uh, it was also wonderful to hear from the local Long Island community uh, from young people to uh, elders about their uh, concerns about the environment and water quality on Long Island and their hope for the future. So I was uh, you know, truly blessed, um, very honored, and it was a, a wonderful memory and a part of my life. So, yeah. Can you talk more about some of the response to the show that you heard, both from youth and elders alike? Uh, well, the work is, uh, my work is centered around, um, you know, my life as an individual from the Shinnecock Nation of Long Island, New York, and the concerns that I witnessed uh, growing up in terms of uh, not being able to see horseshoe crabs for a good period of time, uh, being concerned about harvesting shellfish and not knowing if they had uh, toxicity concerns because right. of some of the algae blooms on Long Island. Right. Uh, also, if we could drink our our water on Long Island growing right. up with all of the uh, the pesticides um, that are used. So these are all things I grew up with, uh, but they're continual concerns, especially after uh, Hurricane Sandy uh, with rising water issues that we have on Shinnecock, um, being that we're we were forced to a fixed position in terms of our traditional uh, lands, but a reservation. Uh, we don't have the option if we were to get a hurricane uh, category six, um, where the waters would rise about three quarters of our territory. Um, we don't have a lot of options uh, for land and uh, to be able to live at home and have those concerns aligned with climate change and, and rising waters. So. Uh, in sharing all of that through either the paintings, the videos, the uh, uh, ceramic sculptural works, the installations, I was able to uh, offer a bit of the observation and immersion that is a part of uh, the breach work that I do, the log books that I do that connect to our um, family members who were whalers during the Yankee whaling industry, hired on for their knowledge. Those are all things that inspire me, just my family, my community. Uh, but to share that with the local Long Island community, you know, the water issues, climate issues, this is a human issue. It's not specific to one community. It's a collective responsibility for all of us. And uh, the Heckscher Museum had brought in a lot of uh, outreach and educational programming with youth. And the youth are our next generation. And for most Indigenous communities, a good majority of our of our uh, beliefs are very centered around the future of our generations and how we can care for that future collectively. Um, but the but the kids, they're so strong, they're so mindful, they're so powerful. So they uh, would share about, you know, their memories of deer crossing because that was one painting I had done about how the deer will cross from Shinnecock Bay over to the Dune, Dune Road area. Um, and I, I thought of, I often think of our local 
uh, species on Long Island as our relatives and kind of a metaphor for indigeneity. Uh, so the deer for me is the little creature that can cross between the res and the wealth of the Hamptons. Um, and the whale is something that a lot of people care for. Um, but in some conversations about indigenous issues, people will care more about a whale than they will our own people, like um, human indigenous people. Uh, so I try to use uh, these moments and opportunities to engage people in greater conversations. And I, I think it's worked. And I also want to say that I'm I'm not, I don't know everything, but the question that leads me in the work is can a culture sustain itself when it no longer has access to the environment that fashions that culture and uh, and and how the culture relates to the landscape. So Long Islanders are also um, a large part of trying to fix these issues, you know, trying to do the best that different communities can do to bring awareness to other communities on Long Island about our runoff issues, right. uh, you know, what's been happening with the horseshoe crabs. So uh, so I'm just one person amongst many, and this was a great opportunity to be in community. Amen. And I, I loved that you talked about the deer crossing. You're talking about deer crossing over water, correct? Yes, yeah. That I didn't really know that deer swam for right. one part in my life. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, when did deer, you learn? You know, when did you learn? Well, I think learning is through observation. So, yes. you know, how did the deer get to Fire Island or right. how, how do, you know, how does one thing get to another? And then the other thing is just being home. Um, you know, we're really blessed as Shinnecock people to, you can look at an aerial view kind of um, Google Maps. Um, you'll see, if you see woods, that's Shinnecock. If you see homes and, and wealth and expansion, those are, that's, those are the other people. Um, so we keep and have kept a good majority of our woodlands and, and uh, space for those um, for those beings to to have some rest and uh, have some space to sleep. And then they also, in return, help our uh, young people who are learning to hunt and harvest. Um, we we have that practice ongoing. So uh, so yeah, there's reciprocity of relationships, and and the deer are part of that. Uh, do you mind? Are you comfortable talking a little bit more about hunting season? Or we're we're in the midst of it, correct? Uh, yeah. Well, I I don't want to. I think um, if you have an opportunity to invite some of the teachers that are working with our youth from Shinnecock, they'd be best to speak to what they're doing. But the Shinnecock Environmental Department, uh, Siobhan Smith, who had contributed to the forward of the catalog that is yes. a part of the exhibition, uh, through her work with community members. Um, there's also the uh, Andrew Cuffey. There's a couple of different people that are working to um, hold workshops uh, to teach uh, hunting uh, skills respectfully uh, to the youth. And uh, and so there is hunting season. But another thing that I, I do talk about in terms of um, when I use the word breach, uh, breach in the English language is uh it's a um a breach it can be an imposition of law or a breach of contract or it can be the whale as it rises through the water and uh and so how that relates to hunting season and laws is that um indigenous people follow uh the laws of nature right and um nature's laws and hunting seasons or ways to care for uh when animals um calf birth do different things uh, we have a different kind of knowledge relationship to that than one set law that sometimes doesn't work with climate change right. or when when species uh, uh, migrate. So um, so th- so there's two different ways to approach that. In terms of Shinnecock people, we teach um, according to to our ways and our knowledge in a respectful way for our, our kids. It's you know it's so funny because it just goes to show how pervasive the colonial mindset is where everything that I'm thinking about is filtered through uh, that mindset. But that makes absolute sense that uh, the timing might and and is different uh, when you consider the indigenous perspective on it. Uh, yeah, and the timing of laws are not always ones that work for nature. 
um, because in terms of Long Island activism with water quality issues, um, there's no rhyme or reason by the time a law is developed, uh, we might have to reassess that law uh, in terms of warming of waters and different species coming through the areas. Right. So, so the work has to be a continual daily work. And for Native people, um, we're used to doing this daily work. Uh, so we, we can't really step outside. Um, we can't step away from the conversation because this conversation is a part of who we are. Um, it's our it's our day to day ways of being. You you hear um, that you hear that uh, you hear this type of thing from people who fish from all walks yes, of life. Exactly. Yeah, and that's the other thing that I really loved about. So I do breach is the word that I hub these logbooks in, and I use the logbook as a reference to kind of the visual jur- journal that people um, have reference to for logbooks on whaling ships. Right. Uh, but my logbooks are a visual account of what I see year to year. And I do a lot of research um, with community. And the communities I've been blessed with are you know, people that include scientists, marine biologists, anthropologists, um, ecologists, urban developers. I, I want to have a conversation where I am a part of the learning process. And when I first started out, I, I wanted to engage with other indigenous coastal communities because I knew in the greater issues of water, when people want to talk about indigenous water issues, they'll often go to the west, uh, west of the Mississippi. Um, they they don't really include voices of people um, in like their own neighborhood. You know, we're, we're native too, like we're indigenous too, and we have water issues here as well. So although your sure, yeah. mindset is in good faith to help, um, like for say the Diné Nation with uranium issues or um, Dakota uh, Ojibwe communities with Great Lakes and the pipelines, um, are those same communities also thinking about the water issues and how they can help local indigenous communities on Long Island or in New England? Um, So, uh, but when I started that path, I was connecting with indigenous communities and I realized, you know, this isn't going to work. All of the labor, all of the hard work, it's usually placed on us. Like people reach out to us. What can we do? How can we help? Um, I would ask that same question to yourself. Like um, what have I done differently in my day to care for place and community Um, and not necessarily ask indigenous people all of the time to fix the problems that were collectively developed. Um, But to go back to when you said about fisheries and people on Long Island, um, I've had the opportunity to work with um, uh, local baymen uh, through the Nature Conservancy residency at the Warhol um, uh, estate out in Montauk. So that was an interesting opportunity to be invited to be a resident of the place that you're from. But I tried to um, approach that opportunity with like just a fresh kind of coming to place. And and through that process, I was able to learn about um, an individual, Mike Martinson, who had Montauk pearls. Uh, he has a, a oyster hatchery now that's in Long Island Sound, but he works um, towards the advocation of uh, aquaculture and um, oysters. Uh, there's also um, uh, a few people from uh, the let's see, a uh, Cold Harbor Springs Nature Nature Conservancy area. Uh, Mark LeBeau. Uh, so there were a lot of people that I've met. Um, and I just really want to strongly acknowledge those communities that are doing that hard work. Yes. But I also want to tie that back to colonialism. Um, in Shinnecock people, we've been fighting for our fishing and subsistence harvest rights for generations. And a lot of that has been generational where sometimes colonial Bay men would be in conflict with our community. Um, I think that work is getting better generationally because people are also realizing that their their generations of younger kids are being forced to leave Long Island because Long Island is too expensive to live on. Um, the taxation on Long Island has increased. Uh, so so that generational knowledge, when it when you can't live on Long Island, that knowledge leaves Long Island. Um, that care of knowledge goes someplace else. Uh, so I also hope that breach affords opportunities for people to amplify the collective issues that are occurring that affects all of us. Um, But my core of this work is just who I am as one person for my community. 
hoping to build community and amplify what we see um, above the water as well as below the water. So beautifully and mindfully said. So grateful to you, Courtney Leonard, and and what a um, a bright example of the power of one person uh, you are in in your work is. I know that the Heckscher Museum of Art retrospective uh, has ended, but uh, you you are also partnering with the Planting Fields Foundation. And do you mind uh, bringing us back and talking about uh, your work that can be seen there throughout this summer? Uh, yes, the, the uh, Planting Fields Foundation through the Cole family, uh, their estate that's there and the uh, Planting Fields. Uh, Noyster Bay. Let's see, uh, the acreage that's there that's now a part of New York State uh, Park. They have, through their programming, uh, what is called the Catalyst Public Artworks along uh, the estate there, so people can walk through the land and visit um, different artists' works that are engaging place. Uh, I am, I believe, the uh, fifth artist to be invited uh, to be a part of the Catalyst Public Art Program. And upon that invitation, I was thinking a lot about the co-family's uh, relationship to uh, shipping insurance, uh, through uh, through large um, shipping cargo uh, ships, and uh, their also family relationship to the railroad, um, the railroad's in- expansion to uh, Long Island is what actually brought people further out east to Shinnecock, and uh, and what it means to be you know a planting field. Uh, I, it brought me to uh, this event that occurred um, through. Uh, the town of Southampton, the colonists um, at one point had set laws um, uh, used against our community where we couldn't park our canoes along Canoe Place. Um, it was interfering with their ships coming through there uh, or boating. And then uh, the other one that goes to what I had uh, developed for planting fields is that we weren't allowed to keep our root cellars, which is a natural way of uh, storing our food. Uh, naturally with the seasons in Long Island, we weren't allowed to keep those root cellars because they were partially dug underground. And if the cow had roamed through um, Long Island that were brought by the colonists, those cows would fall into the root cellars sometimes and break their leg. And we were obligated, forced obligation to pay back the cow. And if we couldn't pay back the cow, they would take land in kind. So that act set up a lot of different ways to disturb our food relationships to place um, because the canoes would be what we would take for fishing. Um, and uh, and then the storage of our, our root cellar process. So the piece that I developed also tied with food sovereignty issues that relate to the whale. Uh, a whale is a, a species that would feed us through winter through hard times right. uh, traditionally before we weren't allowed to uh, harvest whales anymore. Um, and when I have done the research of breach, people are often concerned about indigenous communities continuing to harvest whales today in, in, in uh, the time that we're in. And those, um, those communities like Sea Shepherd um, in particular has been quite violent towards indigenous youth that have practiced uh, whaling in the Alaska North Slope Inupiaq Territory. What they don't realize when people are trying to do this work is that um, in that instance, Paul Watson had cyber bullied an indigenous Inupiaq youth in their first harvest of the whale. And that whale that that youth had brought in and all their full joy and beauty for their community fed that community for um, those seasons, but also seasons to come because they continue to store the whale um, harvest in root cellars there. But because of climate change, those root cellars are no longer being able to be kept cold. And that's become an issue for those communities. But nobody ever asked themselves where their um, implicitness might be in the death of a whale being that the majority of whales killed per year are struck by our shipping industry. Right. Um, so cargo ships with massive containers, shipping containers. So what I did for planning fields was um, the, the work is called Breach Logbook 23 Route. 
And I was thinking about root as the root cause and the root cause of imposition and the root cause of these issues with food sovereignty. And so we buried a shipping container to kind of um, be a metaphor for the whale and also the thing that kills the whale. And the root cellar is the shipping container that's buried within the earth. And I knew... I knew that this would be an imposition to the earth and the land, so that was intentional, um, but it um, it has sense. The land has healed, um, and we have planted goldenrod, which is a part of our traditional uh, medicines, our teas um, for digestion, different things. Uh, that's planted there for pollinators. Uh, there's also some milkweed, I believe, that's planted there, local grasses. Uh, so since I've been able to visit the space, that rejuvenation and healing that the earth will naturally do has occurred. Um, There's also a kind of a cattle rail that people can walk over. Um, It's like a, it looks like a whale buried into the land and people can um, cross over and look down through uh, kind of an oval that's to represent the pod of a whale. And uh, there's also uh, replications of the northern right whale jaws on either end of the shipping container uh, doors that open. Uh, inside there are traditional um, pottery vessels that I coiled uh, to reference our food storage vessels, but also they have holes inside them and the shapes of them are like strawberries because when the show opened, it was June, which is our strawberry moon and strawberry season. And uh, picking strawberries is just one of my favorite memories with my great grandma growing up. Um, So there's also oyster shells in there. And that is speaking to kind of, um, and many Long Islanders know this, but our use of shellfish, um, shells, if you throw them back into the water, um, that those shells act as kind of uh, surfaces for new spat, new oysters to, to connect to and grow right. on. Right. So when we're thinking about coastal erosion, we, we have displaced ourselves from the ways that the land will naturally heal itself. And if we can get back to that more, um, rather than throwing like a bus in the harbor to be a coral reef um, center, uh, there are other natural ways that we could just um, continue to use. So so a lot of my work is layers, um, but yes. I want people to come into the place and navigate and uh, and be witnesses. And then I also look forward to if people send me emails or they reach out, I do my best to try to respond to people. Um, sometimes life gets a little um, hectic for me, but the conversation is what I value the most. And, um, and yeah, so thank you for having me this oh. morning. I really oh. appreciate it. Brilliant thoughtful. I'm glad you were used the word displacement because uh, what you have uh, built at the, the planting fields is a, a perfectly, brilliantly layered uh, conversation about displacement and the ways that uh, that is continuing today for Indigenous communities uh, and thoughtful in ways that are in stark contrast with, as you mentioned, uh, the way a a shipping a shipping um, vessel would uh, remove a whale's life um, when you when you consider it in contrast to uh, the respectful in relationship uh, harvesting of one from a, an indigenous uh, community. Uh, thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us again. Um, where can people go to see your work? Besides the planting uh, fields, of course. Well, um, a large part of, you know, people sometimes um, center my work and my process around activism. Um, uh, one of the things I'm most actively intentional about is having work in public spaces, public collections, things that people can access. So um, the uh, New York Historical uh, Society currently has um, work on view. Uh, I have a big project I'm working on at um, uh, UMass Amherst that opens uh, in February, end of January, uh, and the New Bedford Whaling Museum uh, next summer. Uh, locally, though, uh, had the Heckscher Museum, really, to be honest, um, they've been supportive, and I worked for a year to create a four-foot by eight-foot um, map of Long Island with over 3,000 of my thumbprints establishing physical contact into um, porcelain that I had 
uh, created to replicate um, the colors of purple and white of the Quahog uh, clamshell. Um, that's a large part of our community in relationship to um, trade and wampum belts. Uh, and in each of those thumbprints, I tried to honor people from my community um, or family members or the traveling of, of Breach, the journey of Breach. Uh, that work is a part of their um, permanent collection at the Hexer. It'll be on view um, for their collection exhibition next year. And, uh, and so that's very local uh, to Long Island. And, uh, and, and then I, um, I do have a website, uh, CourtneyLeonard.com, that I have to update because I've been more busy out in the field. Uh, but um, my work are, is the work of breaches in national collections, and I'm getting ready at the end of the month to have a discussion here. Um, I'm actually joining you from Dakota Territory in Minnesota, uh, where I teach at a college called St. Olaf College. And I am looking forward to a conversation I'm having at the Wiseman Art Museum, uh, where I have an installation uh, in regards to the Mississippi River and shell trade from freshwater to salt. But I'm looking forward to talking with um, uh, Dr. Kate Bean, uh, who is Dakota and uh, works in museums and amplification of uh, the Dakota territory and issues of the state. Sharon Day, who's an elder, um, and water walker uh, to bring acknowledgement to the water and issues of the water. Uh, Vincent Diaz, who's from uh, Pacific Island uh, area, Guam, and uh, works at University of Minnesota in talking about um, traditional watercrafts. He runs the canoe house. And then the third person who will moderate our conversation is uh, Dr. Roxanne Gold, um, uh, who's uh, from Great Lakes Territory and works a lot in education uh, on indigenous knowledge and place and, and water. So um, so that's coming up. If you happen to be listening all over, I'm trying to work with community all over and I'm really honored to do that with people. And, and that part is that um, art is for me a means of communication and connection. It, it's a way for me to bring these conversations um, as, as best as I can and also to try to share space with the people that are also doing this work, you know, really strongly doing this work. It's not a singular thing. It's not just like, this isn't the Courtney show. This, this right. is Breach. This is a life's work. And this is about like true people's lives. And I'm just one of many. And, um, and I try to actively to amplify that as best as I can. Unbelievably uh, grateful to you for what you do. Uh, and uh, again, CourtneyMLeonard.com. It's not the Courtney show, but uh, in honor to talk with someone really uh, doing the work of connecting uh, so many pieces that uh, that need to be. And, and uh, grateful to have highlighted you this morning. Uh, I'm going to fly across the playlist and lead you into the NPR news break with Richie Mitch and the coal miners signal sender, a signal from this year as we end the return to sender edition of the heart uh, featuring uh, Mara Ahmad and Courtney Leonard. I'm Gianna Volpe and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM news. You can trust music you love. Sender's coming out She's breaking me in She's pushing me down I 
couple years. She raised me.